morning, church. It is so wonderful to be with you, and happy Father's Day to all of you to whom that designation applies. Uh, excited that you're here with us, especially if you're just visiting with us. Um, I, I always want you to know you're at a place where if you came looking for the perfect people in the perfect church, you came to the wrong place, and I suspect you'll be looking for a long time. But if you came to a place where, where we're going to be real, where we're passionately pursuing the one who made us, we know we're broken, but we know the one who puts everything back together, then you might have found the right place. In fact, I was thinking about that when, Jacob, I don't know where you're sitting, I'm like, how awesome is it that we come to this beautiful, sacred moment of communion, and at least you have the authenticity to admit, this stuff tastes gross. <laughs> I just, I love it, because we're real here. Like, God is sacred in the moment, and we're real here. So if, if you're joining us and that's who you are, you found the right place. Uh, I want to begin just by reading the text we're going to be looking at. If you have your uh, devices or your Bibles, we're in Genesis 32, a uh, pretty well-known character in Scripture. He's one of the named guys of the Old Testament, Abraham, Isaac, and we're picking up in the story of Jacob, and we're picking up in a place where, like most of his life, he's been on the run from one thing after another. His brother, his uncle Laban, now God has called him to go back home, but he's terrified. Because 20 years before, he ran away after basically swindling his warrior older brother who threatened to kill him, and he doesn't know what to expect when he goes home to see his brother. And so he does what he always does. He schemes. We're skipping over parts of that story. Breaks his group up into two different camps. He's going to send them there with gifts and all of that. And we'll pick up the story where Jacob begins in prayer to God in this moment. Genesis 32, verse 9. Then Jacob prayed, O God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, Lord, you who said to me, go back to your country and your relatives, and I will make you prosper. I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you've shown to your servant. I had only my staff when I crossed this Jordan, but now I've become two camps. Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau, for I am afraid." He will come and attack me and also the mothers with their children. But you have said, I will surely make you prosper and will make your descendants like the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted. And he sends the group over and then we'll pick up in verse 22. That night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, two female servants and his 11 sons and crossed the ford of the Jabbok River. And after he sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions and Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until daybreak. When the man saw he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. And then the man said, let me go for it's daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And the man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. And the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? And then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying it is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. And the sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. Let's pray. Father God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O oh Lord, our rock, and our Redeemer. Amen. I was about eight years old, and I was doing at that time what a lot of eight-year-olds did in my neighborhood, and I know a lot of yours have because I've been there, and that's playing Little League Baseball. 
And I remember early on in the year, our coach came in and he had this great opportunity for us. And you've heard these opportunities before. The opportunity was, we're going to do a fundraiser. All the parents are cringing. You've had to do these before, the kids. And I thought, okay, well, at least not too horrible. My sister, when she did soccer and she did her fundraiser, she got to sell Krispy Kreme donuts. So, you know, our family bought most of them. Or my friends that were in the band, they got to sell these fat Nestle chocolate bars, and that sounded really good, and I'm all ready for that. And then he brings out the, the uh, flyer of what we're selling. We're selling, and I'm not kidding you, Drix cleaning products. Now, I've never heard of it before or since, but there's some cleaning product company back then, Drix. I had to sell it, and boy, everything inside of me sunk until I looked at that glossy colored flyer. Because on that flyer were all sorts of prizes that you could earn if you sold up to different levels. And of course, if you give me something to shoot for, I'm looking at the highest one. And I looked at the top and there was this professional looking, glorious leather Mizuno baseball mitt. And I decided that day, looking at that flyer, I'm going to win that thing. So you know what I did, right? I went to church. I talked to all my mother's friends, and I went all around there, and and then I went and talked to my friends who weren't playing baseball and talked to their parents, but that wasn't enough. Again, it was a different world back then. I was eight years old. I went out alone, and I went all the way through the neighborhood and knocked on doors. And the way it worked is you would get the commitment, and they would sign. Here's their play. I'm doing this. I'm paying this. And I would come back later with my box of Drix cleaning products, and I would give it to them, and they would give me the money, and the heavens would open and then would descend the baseball mitt. And I will never forget the day I was walking. I'd gotten a lot of them, but I needed every one of those sales to get that baseball mitt. And if you could picture in your mind, I've come up to this porch. It, it, was a, it was a concrete porch with concrete steps. And I walked on it. I knocked on the door. And out came this guy. The only thing I could say to describe it, if you go back 10, 15 years, Tony Soprano walked out the door. All right, he's not the rock, he's not all cut, but he's a big man, especially for an eight-year-old kid. Scared me to death just when he walked out. He's got the tank top t-shirts and everything. I know there was a half-drunk Budweiser in there, even though it was Saturday morning, and he came out. And he looked at me and he said, I'm not paying for that. And I tried to, you know, use your signature, you know, all that. I'm not paying for that. He scared me so badly, I ran all the way home. And for a moment, what I want you to do is I want you to get a picture of the man on the porch. Because I believe he is symbolic of what all of us face, and man, it's all over our world today. He is a symbol for our fear. What are you afraid of right now? Because fear hits us in a thousand different ways, in a thousand different forms, for a thousand different reasons. For some, it's physical illness that is creating your fear. Uh, For others, it might be financial distress. For others, some kind of emotional turmoil. For others, it's some kind of uncertain future. For whatever reason, there's some anxiety, some stress, some fear that weighs down. It looms over us. It weighs on us. So here's a question. Who is the man on the porch in your life right now? And more importantly, what are you going to do about it? And for me, that's where I enter the story with Jacob because Jacob isn't just living out his life. The beautiful thing about Scripture is he often plays out our own lives because what I see in this story is that sometimes what we do is we fight in the face of our fear. I'm afraid of something. I'm worried about something, so I'm going to fight. And if anybody knows the story of Jacob, Jacob has been a fighter, a grappler, a wrestler, a contender his entire 
life. And when I say his entire life, I mean from the womb. Some of you have heard these stories before, if you haven't. Twins in Rebecca's womb, he's one of them. Before they're born, they're wrestling and grappling and contending so much in their mother's womb, she has to go to her prayer place and say, God, what is going on here? Some of you have had that experience. And God says, two nations are in your womb and they're fighting now and they'll be fighting for a long time. And when Jacob is born, he's born grabbing the heels of his second's older brother. He's wrestling and fighting from birth and they named him Jacob, the heel grabber. And it's a name that in their culture and society means deceiver or supplanter, someone in my translation who's tripping you up all the time for his own advantage. And that's exactly what he does the rest of his life. You maybe have heard this story before. Jacob was a homebody. And he's cooking. He's cooking a big pot of soup. And his brother, the warrior, is out hunting and working. And he comes back famished. And he walks back into the camp. And Jacob has food. And he's dying for food. And Esau says, give me some of that soup. And Jacob, who will do nothing without grappling and fighting and tripping, says, sure, I'll give it to you for a price. Sell me your birthright. And in that age and in place, being the firstborn means you get a lot more. And he said, give it to me. And Esau, foolishly, as Esau would do, sells it to him for a pot of soup. But if you know his story, it's not by any stretch of the imagination the worst thing that Jacob does. I worked for some years in, uh, in an industry helping caregivers of aging and disabled older folks that, you know, often the caregiver's the child or something like that. And the thing that makes me the maddest is when those who are supposed to be caregivers actually take advantage of those who are older and infirm. And that's exactly what Jacob does when his father gets too old to see you haven't heard this story before, Jacob, sorry, Isaac is about to give the family blessing. And in, in this family, that's a big blessing. And in that culture, when you give a blessing, you can't just say, sorry, I didn't mean that and take it back. My favorite line, Frederick Beekner in his chapter on this very story says, the closest thing we can get to the Israelite blessing is we all know this to be true. And I quote, when things are said in deep love or deep hatred, it sets things in motion in the human heart that cannot be turned around. When something is spoken out of deep love or deep hatred, it sets things in motion that cannot be turned around and the blessing cannot be turned around. And so Jacob, the deceiver, the tripper, the supplanter, goes and together with his mother concocts a plan to lie to his father's face, to pretend to be Esau and to receive the blessing. And Esau will say, isn't he rightly named Jacob? Because he is a deceiver. He trips us up all along the way. And then before this story, Jacob, running in fear for his life the last 20 years, ends up at the house of his uncle Laban. And if you just look through the story, Jacob gets a little of what he deserves. He never gets what he deserves. He gets a little of it because Laban's a con man too. And for 20 years, they play off of each other, each trying to kind of get the upper hand over the other person. And Jacob is wrestling and fighting to the point where he kind of sneaks away in the middle of night. And Jacob does what he's always been doing, running for his life because of his deceit. Because of his tripping up and supplanting, he's running from Laban, and it is only because God intervenes in the middle of the night that Laban doesn't go and take him out. And so we end up right here in this place, and yet one more time, even 
when he's starting to just kind of open up in some form of surrender in prayer, we still hear the fighter's language. Did you catch it? In verse 10, he says to God in his prayer, I'm unworthy of all the kindness and unfaithfulness you've shown to your servant. What an understatement. By the way, if you're looking in Genesis for superheroes, Joseph's pretty cool, but the rest don't fit the bill. I'm unworthy. You bet your life you are. This is what he said. I had only my staff when I crossed this Jordan, but now I have become two, and the text says here and several times throughout, whether it's translated groups or something else, I've become two camps, is what he says. And we know elsewhere in Scripture that is a fighting word. That's a military term. It is, maybe you've heard it this way in the King James, hosts, the Lord of hosts, or in the message translation, the God of angel armies. It's the same word. Jacob comes back home, but he doesn't come home as a couple family clans. He comes back as two military armies preparing for fight. His entire life, Jacob has been fighting and grappling and wrestling to get ahead, to get a leg up, to be someone who has safety and provision and protection. He's been fighting literally his entire life. And why this story resonates with me is because Jacob is not the only one. Jacob is not the only one that has a picture in his mind of the way the world ought to be and the way people ought to act and will do everything in his own human energy to try to make it happen. I spend my life, and I have for years, helping myself and other people to develop and grow, whether it's in discipleship groups or life coaching groups or with couples or some personal development or something. And I'll tell you, there is one common thread for all of us. I include myself in it. Huge obstacle all of us have to overcome if we really want to grow. And here's what it is. Let go of control. Number one thing we tend to try to do is we want to control the situations and the people and the circumstances of our lives, and often we will wear ourselves out trying to do it. How many times have you heard, we say it as jokes sometimes, have you heard heard people say, you know, church would be great if it weren't for the people. (laughs) I've coached football, as you know, a lot of times, and and some of the most brilliant coaches of all time, going back to my hero, Tom Landry and others, they used to get really frustrated because they would draw up these brilliant game plans, and the only problem is they couldn't run them themselves. It took people to go do it. There's this struggle in the human broken heart to grapple and fight and contend. And by the way, it's not all evil like Jacob. Do you understand this? Jacob is kind of conniving and deceitful about it. But I think all of us in a fallen world say, even for benevolent reasons, we look around and we want the world to be different and better. And we think we know how to get there by our own power. And sometimes it takes these monumental circumstances of our lives to realize that we can't fight enough to get what we really want. One of my dearest friends told me recently, he just came to the point, he was trying to kind of almost deny it himself. His daughter certainly was. His daughter admitted she's an alcoholic. And we're in the moment right now where he is struggling with all the energy, he is a follower of Jesus, with all the energy God is providing him to not try to fix her. Because how well does that work? But everything in this loving father's heart wants to step in and manage and control and fix everything around us. And that is a human, broken, fallen tendency in this world. We are all Jacob, grappling, fighting, 
and contending. By the way, this is a kind of a side thing to throw out there. I invite you to go read uh, the chapter in the book called Magnificent Defeat if you want a whole piece on this, but I just kind of throw it out there. If you're looking for a nice little moral story where everybody gets what they deserve, you, you won't get it with Jacob. He lies, deceives, his father goes out and has a vision from heaven with God coming up and down and giving him a promise. It's not quite the nice little neat moral story we want it to be, although Jacob has issues and God isn't done with him yet. But I still can say this, when he arrives on this side of the Jabbok River, one thing that we see is that he's been fighting and fighting and fighting his entire life to get ahead, to get something, and here's the thing, all of the fighting didn't give him the very thing he was fighting most for. And that's peace of mind and heart and soul. He couldn't get it. What does the text tell us? Verse 11, what does he say to God? Save me, I pray. Why? Because I'm afraid. For all of his fighting for 20 years, all of the companies and camps and armies of people that he has and provisions and cattle, I'm still afraid. Verse 7, we didn't read this, but he said, I came to this place in great fear and distress. We all tend to fight in the face of our fear. The only problem with that is it doesn't work. Because for all the fighting, we're left with the very fear that we were running away with and fighting against in the first place. So as we step a little deeper in the story, here's, here's a powerful thing to, to me. Sometimes we find ourselves fighting in the face of fear, but sometimes we find out and we realize we're fighting against something that's bigger than ourselves. You get the sense, have you ever been doing this? You're grappling, you're fighting, you're doing all your stuff, and all of a sudden you feel like it's not just circumstances and the world that's pushing against you. It feels like this cosmic force is pushing back as well. It's actually the grace of God who shows up in a moment like this. When you come to this text, we saw the opening part, but especially the wrestling part. Let's be honest, it's a weird story. I mean, it's weird, isn't it? The whole wrestling, it's weird. By the way, if anybody tries to come and give a perfect, nice little dissected, clean um, uh, treatment of the story, I would, I would be a little suspect. It's, it's mysterious for a reason. Uh, it's told from Jacob's perspective, by the way. So he's there and he's sitting there alone in the dark. By the way, the entire story is set in the dark except the very, very end that's doing something to us. And in the darkness, this man shows up. From his, who is this guy? We don't know. And all of a sudden, how weird is this? He's getting ready to fight another guy. He knows the man on the porch he's going to, but all of a sudden, another man on the porch shows up and he's fighting this force he does not know. Now, there's a thousand things we can do. And again, I got 20 pages of, of notes if you want me to throw them at you, but I, I want to pick one thing to say on this day, what might bring something to our hearts? Here's one way to get at this story wrestle, pardon the pun, intentional with the text, with this question. Who wins the fight? Don't, don't be too quick to answer and certainly don't answer in a very clean way. Who wins the wrestling match? That's a little confusing. We could say, in a sense, and the text kind of pushes this away a little bit, to say, well, Jacob seems to win. All right, what does it say here? In verse 25, this mysterious man could not overpower him. We're told earlier in the story, Jacob, like Herculean man, moves this huge stone that other people couldn't move. He's a strong guy. And he's grappling with this mysterious man. And the man says, oh, it says in the text, man couldn't overpower him. And so the man says to him as the daylight is about to come, let me go because I don't want you to see me. And there's more to that in the story. Let me go. And he requests him to do it. And we'll do a lot more on this in a moment, but 
But the name itself comes out with this idea that his name becomes one who has struggled or wrestled or contended with people and with God and have prevailed. So the text seems to point to us that Jacob wins the battle in some way here. And yet, doesn't it feel like there's a little bit more going on? Don't you just get the sense that this story could have gone very differently? I'm thinking of the movie Princess Bride, right? The great classic, theological classic, The Princess Bride. You remember the, the sword battle on top of the mountain? If you don't, you, you know, that's your homework is to go watch this as a spiritual movie. And on top of the mountain, they're fighting with the swords. And, and what's the secret? Does anybody remember the secret? They're fighting. So you can say it. Yeah, I, I'm not left-handed. He's fighting left-handed. And of course, the Dread Pirate Roberts will fight for a while, and he's fighting for a while, and then he's smiling. Why are you smiling? Because the secret? I'm not left-handed either. <laughs> Here's what we know. At any moment on that mountaintop, the Dread Pirate Roberts could have ended the fight. And when he was done, he did. Ah, oh, do you see what's going on here? They're fighting, grappling, couldn't let him go. All right, think, gone. <laughs> it's over. Or I think when I was a kid, when I was a little kid, my brother literally was a wrestler, big old meat hand, strong guy. And sometimes we'd arm wrestle at the table, he'd be eating a sandwich. And then when he got bored, what did he do? Boom, it was over. You get the sense. Jacob is wrestling and he's winning, but only because God is playing left-handed the whole time. And we know from other texts, Hosea says, ah, uh, it was God on that mountain. Jacob himself tells us this wasn't just a human being. And as the light begins to dawn, the light begins to dawn, this isn't just another human being. Sometimes, hear me, in all the fights, in all the battles, in all the frustrations, because you're not getting your way, you may be facing frustration, not because you're fighting people or circumstances, you're fighting God himself. And hear me, this is a grace in a moment like that. Why? Look, even before we get to the resolution of the story, I want you to feel something this moment that's a tremendous gift. What we learn in this moment, it's God in the battle, and what it tells us, God is kind enough to bend down to us. He gets down right in the middle of our battles and our fights, and he'll play by our rules for a while. By the way, Jesus did it the whole time, and he never brought out the God card and touched the hip. He told you he could have, but he didn't. Sometimes God bends down, as Calvin put it. I love it. Sometimes the great graciousness of God, he stoops. When you're teaching a child, you don't teach from up here. What do you do? And this is what our God does. He bends down right in the middle of our battle and fight. And sometimes he's fighting against us, but he's not fighting against us to hurt you. He's fighting against us to change you. But I love the fact that when he's doing that, he's right there with us. This isn't a cathedral. This happens at least three times in Jacob's life when an everyday, ordinary, commonplace becomes a sanctuary of the living God. Because God stoops and bends down and shows up on riverbanks called the Jabbok River and, and little places like this and out when you're fishing, when you're walking with your kids. God bends down and stoops in everyday moments. I, I was thinking about this. I was telling friend of mine, just this morning, one of, you know, sometimes I have these conversations of the week that just carry me all the way through the week. And I talk, got to talk to my friend Mike several days ago. A lot of you actually know Mike. Mike's an artist. 
as a hobby, as a gift of God. That's not the way he makes his living, but he's an artist. And for years, he wondered, like, is God going to use this gift? And, and he was telling me about a couple Sundays ago, his preacher invited him to paint while he was preaching. Now, you got to picture this. It was beautiful. Um, the way they had their room is it's in the round. So all the people are in the round. The preacher's in the middle. Mike's painting. And he invited three people to paint that day. So Mike is here, another person's painting, uh, another guy's painting over here, a lady's painting over here, and then the guy's preaching. Now, here's the cool thing. None of them knew what the other one was doing. I've done a paint talk before, but boy, we had it down to the moment. When I say this word, you'd bring the blood off the thing, all that. None of that. He said, I'm not going to tell you what I'm preaching. I don't want you to tell me what you're painting, and I don't want you to tell the other people what they're painting. How cool is this? I'm looking at folks, you would love this, wouldn't you, Charles? You would love this. This way, they, they start, he starts preaching. And somewhere about halfway through the sermon, this whole section starts laughing, the joyful laughter of the Holy Spirit of God. Because he's preaching about Jesus walking the water. We think Mike painted. Jesus walking the water. This section starts breaking out laughter because he's, pre- he's preaching on Jesus walking the water and the storms of life. And what is this person painting? This guy's painting Jesus walking the water. And then over here, this lady is, is, is painting Jesus wrapping her arms around, I think it was a little girl. After it was all over, that's how personal our God is. After it was all over, a guy came up to Mike and said, you would not believe this. I went to this art show this week and God just totally showed up powerfully. And there were a ton of different art there, but there were two paintings that God spoke to me most powerfully through. Can you guess what they were? Jesus walking on the water and Jesus wrapping his arms around a little child. God stoops right into our world and he'll show up right where we are in the battles of our life. Isn't that incredibly powerful? See, sometimes we find ourselves fighting circumstances and places and grappling with all of that. We realize that God himself is showing up in the midst of our battles. But my favorite part of this story, oh, it's so beautiful, is if we stay in it long enough, maybe, possibly, we might begin to realize that we shouldn't be fighting at all. They just hang the gloves up right now. Let's stop fighting completely. What happens by the end of the story? Look, here's what's amazing. Just take this in for a moment. Jacob does what Jacob always does. At the end, what is he doing with this, this man we know is the angel, the representative of God? What is he doing? Just what he did when he was born. Clinging to him. And what does he want? Give me, help me church, give me a what? Give me a blessing. Please take this in. This is monumental. Because from the moment of his birth, he was fighting for the blessing of his family. If he got out first, he'd get the blessing. If he connives his father and he gets it from Esau, he'll get the blessing. And here he's struggling, give me the blessing. Does anybody recognize the insanity of what he's been doing? Does anybody get it? What is he fighting for? What he already has. Before he was born, in fact, two generations before he was born, God says, Abraham, through your line, I'm going to populate the world and I'm going to bless the entire cosmos. And Abraham, it's not going to be that one. It's going to be this one, Isaac, and then Isaac, even over Isaacs. Don't you think that Isaac himself, maybe in the back of his mind, knew it's probably all right that I got swindled a little bit because God had already decided, and I quote, the older will serve the younger. Take this in for a moment because it's huge. If you stay in the battle long enough, you may let God open your eyes to the fact that what you've been fighting for your entire life, you already have. 
Now, Jacob couldn't see it yet. This is really important. He couldn't see it yet. Abraham screwed up monumentally because he couldn't see the child yet. But you've got to hear this. When God, the creator of the universe, who the Bible says it is euthemis Greek, it is impossible for God to lie. Hear me. When God makes a promise, even if you cannot see it, it already is reality. Can I say this again? It's so important. When God makes a promise, it already is reality. Chris, go talk to Chris and he'll explain to you this wonderful thing about how God is outside of time. Let him explain C.S. Lewis's chapter on time to you and what you'll know. When God makes a promise, it already happened, right? It already is. Now, I know it's hard when we're facing the man on the porch, whatever it is, and we don't see it, but for God, it already is. And do you ever, this almost tragic part of Jacob's story. How many people did he run over in his life? How many people did he hurt in his life fighting for what already was his? So I encourage you to think for a moment. Holy Spirit, do the work on all of us. Start with me. Examine the conflicts and anxieties of your life right now. Think about what you're fighting for, what you're staying up for, what you're sweating and crying and grappling and sometimes running over other people in order to do, not because you're evil, but because you know what the best thing is for this person in that situation, in this church, in this life. Examine your conflict and ask this question. Am I fighting against people for what God already has given me? And I understand you may not be able to see it right now, What you want most in your world right now, you cannot see, but I'm telling you, by the promise of God, it is already true. Some people destroy other people in order to prop up their own self-worth and self-value. God says, I've already given it to you. Some people run over folks in order to feel like they belong. There are folks that will get into gangs and any number of things that will destroy other folks so they can belong to one group. God says, you already belong. Some people are longing for a hope and a future and will do anything in the world to get provision and hope and future. And God says, I've already given it to you. I know you can't see it right now. But it's already yours. The last part of this is so powerful to me. Is the name. I have three pages of single space notes on just what you do with the name of Israel. Albert, we could have fun with that, right? Uh, Again, it's not clean. One way of reading this is what the text invites us to. Hosea will do this too, to say we're looking at the name change from the deceiver to one who grapples and fights with God and who overcame. And that's, that's an aspect of the story. But I love the way one commentator put it this way. Even, even a basic knowledge of Hebrew, which I don't even have that, but a basic knowledge of Hebrew will tell you that little phrase, Israel, the El, Elohim, God, is the subject of the phrase and not the one acted upon. So yes, you go this angle. And again, it's a wordplay, so all of this is true. But here's the deepest meaning of this story, as well as the name What Israel means, first and foremost, is not that he fought with God and won, but listen to me, Israel means God fights, God contends, God grapples, or one translation, God rules. In fact, look at the story. Who started the fight? Jacob thought he was fighting his whole life. He's going to sleep. He thinks he's going to go fight that fight over there. And the mysterious man walks in the camp and says, no, we're going at it right now. 
God is the one who fights. God is the one who contends. God is the only one who can win the battles that we care about most in our lives. And so what he does for Jacob, towards the end of his life, the light literally in the story begins to dawn as Jacob finally gets it. I was Jacob. By the way, don't you notice in the gracious pastoral heart of God, he makes him say it. He won't say his name. By the way, God, I've heard this. God isn't afraid. He's not going to give him power over him. It's not that. The point isn't his. The point is, he says, what's your name? And he had to say, you ready for this? I am a deceiver. It's called confession. It's called repentance in the face of God. He had to say, I'm a deceiver, I'm a supplanter, I'm a tripper-upper, I have deceived and grappled my entire life. God says, awesome, I can work with that. Now you are the one who contends with God and who has overcome, and more importantly, you are the one for whom God will fight. And for the rest of your life, oh yeah, you'll be limping, but that limp will remind you that this nation who will bear your name will be fought for. And all the people that get grafted in, the church of Jesus Christ gets fought for the I almighty king God. At the end of the day, can we get to a place, this is not passivity, by the way, this is very active surrender to say, all right, God, you're the one fighting the battle and I'm walking with you. And everything changes. Jacob literally is a different human being when he leaves the Jabbok River than when he started. You know, I had to go back to the porch, right? <laughs> I ran all the way home that day after Tony Soprano scared me to death. Ran all the way home, tears streaming down my face, running out of fear. Came in the house. My father saw me. He said, What happened? And I told him the story. I will never forget this. Father, are you ready for this? He did not say a word, he just put on his shoes. And he said, let's go. He said, bring your box. <laughs> so I pick up this box of Drix cleaning products and I stumble shaking out the door and we go down to that concrete porch and we climb up those stairs and we knock on the door and he comes out and my dad said, is that your signature? <laughs> like, yeah. He said, did you tell my son you're not gonna pay for this? He said, yeah. My dad stretched out his hand and he said, you don't do that to an eight-year-old boy, and you most certainly don't do that to my son. So you're going to do two things. Number one, you're going to look my boy in the eye, and you're going to apologize. And number two, you're going to go in there and get your wallet. You're going to pay for this. And Tony Soprano did not walk. He ran into the house. <laughs> and he came back, and he paid me. Here's what I want you to hear, though. When I walked off that porch, I walked off a different person than the one who walked up. Now, I'm telling you, God's got to take me back to that porch again and again and again. But in that one moment, I wasn't afraid anymore. I wasn't afraid of the man on the porch because all I could see was my father who stepped into the fight and fought with me and fought for me. And I don't know what your man on the porch is, but this is what I can tell you with all the certainty of the word of God. The God we worship today is a fighter and he's your father. And all you've got to do is surrender the battles that matter most to him. Our glorious Father God, you are a warrior, it says 
in the book of Exodus. The Lord, Yahweh, is your name. You are the God of hosts, and you're not fighting against people. You're not fighting to destroy people. You're fighting to reclaim the identity you wanted to give us all along. So we begin this morning by confessing we are all Jacob. We are all deceivers. We're all wrestlers. We are all trying to fight our way to what you already wanted to give us in the first place. But Father, can you take us to the place where we can open our arms and receive that you are Israel, the God who fights and the God who glorifies, who will never let his purposes and people fail. In the glorious name of Jesus, amen.